Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to the show. So, I have a question for you. How many meetings do you attend in a week or a month that are actually really effective, productive, good use of time? Just imagine if we could fix that. And that's what we're going to talk about today. For all the companies that I visit, consult with, I suspect the average person in those companies spends eight hours or more a day going to meetings and responding to email and often trying to do both at the same time. And it makes you wonder how it is that anybody gets any real work done, or maybe I should say, what is the real work? Because it certainly all looks like it's about going to meetings and doing email. And don't get me wrong, both have value if they're used well. However, it just seems things have gotten out of hand. We need to step back and ask ourselves what really makes for productive meetings and then make some changes. So the good news about today is my guest today has been 20 years studying what makes for great meetings, and that's what we're going to talk about. So my guest, Dr. Stephen Rogelberg, is a Chancellor's Professor at UNC Charlotte, and his newest book, hitting all the top summer best reads, is The Surprising Science of Meetings, How Can How You Can Lead Your Team to Peak Performance. And I think the timing has never been better for this topic. It's been recognized by the Washington Post as the number one leadership book to watch, In 2019, Business Insider has it as one of their top 14 business books. He's been profiled on CBS This Morning. And Stephen has over 100 publications on these issues like team effectiveness and leadership and engagement in meetings at work. He's done a ton of work on this himself. And he's won a prestigious international award for his research called the Humboldt Award. That work has been discussed on HBR, on BBC World, on Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post, and NPR, and the London Guardian, and National Geographic, and in Scientific Mind. I think everybody wants to know how do we have better meetings. I should also say he consults with some amazing clients like IBM, TIAA, Cisco, Procter & Gamble, Family Dollar Stores, 3M, Corning, KPMG, and Siemens, just to mention a few. And if you want to know more about him, you can visit him at stephenrogelberg.com. Stephen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, and thank you for that very kind introduction. <laughs> it's an important, it's a hugely important topic, Stephen, and anybody who's bothered to go through the science and say, what is this, and what do we know, and what makes for a great meeting, you have my ear. This is really important. So let me start at the top with a little bit of a big question, which is, in your view, what are the top five things we get wrong about face-to-face meetings. And I want to focus first on face-to-face, and then we'll go to that terrible thing called the virtual meeting. Okay. Well, um, so there's a, let me start with kind of the umbrella. So the umbrella is that most meeting leaders are not intentional when it comes to meetings. So they tend to dial it in. They tend to 
replicate practices they see others do. They really don't give the meeting much thought. They really don't embrace their role as a steward of others' time. And that mindset really is important. And interestingly, we have this mindset, we have this intentionality every time we meet with a customer. But when it comes to meeting with our peers or direct reports, we tend not to have that mindset. So we miss this intentionality. And by missing this intentionality, our meetings tend to get bloated in size. Our meetings tend to be scheduled for too much time. Our meetings tend to contain agenda items that, all, that are not all that relevant. The meeting isn't actively facilitated. And when the meeting ends, people really don't know what truly was decided. <laughs> yeah, that's just to get started. Yeah. <laughs> How many of these have we all been to where you actually, if you, if you surveyed people coming out of the meeting room and you ask, what did we decide to do, by when and by whom, you would get a different answer from absolutely every single person. And you may think that's the middle of the organization, but my experience is it's throughout the organization from the very top all the way down to the, to the bottom of the organization. Okay, so... What do we do instead? So instead of having bloated meetings that are too long and no agenda and so on, what do we do instead? Well, let's go back to kind of the first thing I talked about, which is the idea of embracing and recognizing that when you call a a meeting that you are a steward of others' time. Um, So having that mindset starts to lead to you making careful decisions. Um, So it starts with, what to talk about. Um, so what should go on that agenda? And so that's kind of the first set of strategic kind of questions that you need to ask yourself. It's what's truly important. Um, you should ask others for input into that as well so you know what's on their minds. And then you craft a story, right? What's the order in which this should be discussed? And you want to start with the most meaty and most important items first so that you catch people's attention. And from the very get-go, they know that their attendance was important. Also, by creating these really strategic purposes, you have a better sense of who to invite and who not to invite. And I'll throw out one quick technique um, that is really fun to talk about, which is, you know, we think of agendas as a set of topics. So there's an alternative approach. And that alternative approach is to think of creating an agenda with a set of questions to be answered. And it's a very different mindset. If you start thinking about your agenda as questions to be answered, well, it's easier to identify who really needs to be there because they're relevant to the questions. You know when to end the meeting because the questions have been successfully answered. And if you just can't think of any questions, it probably means that you don't need a meeting. Yeah. I think and I've done a number of shows on this as well, that as leaders, we don't think carefully about the questions that we ask. And the questions are the single best way you have of coaching and of developing people, of getting people to think for themselves, of making sure we haven't missed things. I mean, it's just important, powerful skill as a leader. But here it is in the meeting, instead of thinking about what the topic is, to think about the question, because that forces you to think about what the outcome is you want from that discussion, not just the topic of, you know, customer complaints. How do we deal? You have a question there that's associated with it. I think that's really cool. 
Thank you. All right. Yeah, so kind of very different thinking. All right. So I have heard comments from, you know, it's all over the internet with various companies doing various things. But one of them that really strikes my attention is this notion that we stop making presentations in meetings. That if it's just information decision dissemination, then that's better done with a document or an email. And we don't actually need to bring people together. So we stop using PowerPoints in meetings and we use the meetings exclusively for discussion. What's your view of that? Um, our meeting problems are not due to PowerPoint. Um, that's not why. Um, our meeting problems are really due to a meeting leader uh, not doing their job. Um, yeah. And anytime, you know, there are a host of tools that a meeting leader can choose to leverage during a meeting to make it work. And there's absolutely time for a PowerPoint. It's fine and very appropriate. But like any tool, if it's overused, uh, used inappropriately, then it's not going to have value. So if we think the elimination of, pa- of PowerPoint is going to make our meetings all of a sudden better, we're kidding ourselves. <laughs> you know, what we really want to do is just make sure leaders recognize that they are creating an experience. And we want them to be ten- intentional. We want them to think through the fact that they have a lot of different types of tools that can be used during that meeting. For example, um, silence. So silence can be used in meetings really strategically. Do you know that if you have a group brainstorm in silence, just writing down ideas or using an app, they basically generate nearly twice as many ideas as a talking group, and those ideas tend to be more innovative and more disruptive. So that's another technique and a, a tool that could be handy. It doesn't mean you should use silence all the time, but you should use it some of the time when it makes good sense. And that applies to PowerPoints as well. Okay. All right. So it's not the tools. It's the intentionality. It's the focus on, I think you said that really well, of understanding what's the question and therefore who needs to be there and what does the answer look like and then crafting the story. What's the sequence of things that we go through in this meeting with the meaty ones first so we're really very clear about our strategic purpose and coming together. Yes, well stated. And interestingly, it's kind of what you do in preparing for all your shows, right? You don't just dial it in. You think through the story. You think through the key questions that will elicit meaningful answers. So you, in in the preparation of your shows, you model this intentionality. And it's these types of intentionality skills that we just want leaders to do every time they meet with their people. Okay, Okay. All right. Well, let's dive into some of the science. Um, What's the best way to start a meeting or is there a best way? Um, So there's not like this um, magic thing to do. What's most important is to recognize that meetings, that the research generally suggests that meetings are experienced very much how we experience being interrupted. And typically when we're interrupted, it kind of makes us unhappy and can put us in a bad mood. So therefore, mm-hmm. meeting leaders have to recognize that people basically enter into the meeting kind of not in the best mindset. So they have to, from the get-go, embrace their role as a host. And what does a host do? They welcome people, right? They welcome people. They thank them for coming. They make introductions. Um, when people don't know each other, they express appreciate, appreciation, And so that's the best way of starting a meeting. Embrace your role as a host. 
I like that. Okay, so first off, this is a very interesting, different approach. I'm going to change my mindset about the meeting. I have to be a steward of people's time. I love that phrase, internally, not just externally. And then I have to be very intentional about the agenda, and I have to think about it as a story. It's experience you're going all the way through. And my job is to host the meeting, so I welcome people. I love this. Boy, is that different. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, it's just like we, the leader called together the gathering. The, meter, the, the meeting leader is basically asking people to relinquish their time and control. That's a big ask. And when you recognize that you're making that ask, well, you better be appreciative because people are giving you like the greatest resource they have, which is their time yeah. and energy. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I often think that we need to stop and think how many, how much money is expended by having fifteen people sitting around a table for an hour. That's a lot of effort. Um, you don't think about it because it's just an hour of your time, but times fifteen—that's a lot. You know, it it adds up really quickly. Okay, now you talk about a variety of different ways of doing meetings. You talk about ending a meeting instead of having it be a standard hour, having it be a different number. Why? Well, um, so let me frame it uh, this way, is that I just want people to make choices about how much time should be spent in the meeting. So why do you think most meetings are scheduled for one hour? Because the calendar defaults to an hour. Exactly. And that's not a good reason. That's not a good reason, especially because of Parkinson's law. And Parkinson's law is the idea that work expands to whatever time is allotted to it. So if you schedule a meeting for an hour, magically it will take an hour hour. plus. (laughs) So exactly. So basically what I want leaders to do is to think about what needs to be accomplished in the meeting and then decide how long it will take. And if it looks like it's going to take 48 minutes, that's fine. You don't need to schedule an hour. In fact, once you decide on how long a meeting should take, what would be great is if you dial it back a little bit, add a little extra pressure, because the research shows that when you add a little extra pressure, the group is more focused and performs optimally. So <laughs> I want leaders to recognize that they can pick all kinds of times. Um, they can start at 10 minutes after the hour. They could end at 48 minutes after the hour. But just be intentional and thoughtful. And recognize that by dialing back your meeting from 60 minutes, even to 50 minutes, you're giving people 10 minutes to basically transition to their next activity. So we do this all the time in schools. We recognize that people need transition time, but for some reason we don't do it in organizations. And this is very problematic. So we can kind of help address that problem as well. Yeah. I've only, in all the years that I've been working with a range of executives, long time, I've only ever met one person who was really good about the transition time. And he would start this, every meeting with him, he'd start and say, let's check our time. I have a meeting that starts exactly 60 minutes from now and it's going to take me 10 minutes to get from here to there. So I'm going to have to leave at 50 minutes after the hour. He's the only person I've ever known who did that. He actually thought about the time it takes to go from point A to point B. And boy, is that helpful. I can tell you, absolutely helpful. 
All right, so we come back to this notion of intentionality, intentionality on the time, and then dial it back a bit because you're right. When it's a bounded time, we have an infinite, finite time to finish something. We tend to be a little more focused. That pressure makes us more efficient at the end of the day. All right, I want to shift gears a little bit. I know you're a big fan of a thing called huddle meetings, um, and you've cited an awful lot of research about it. So tell me what they are and tell, the, tell us why they matter so much. Well, I'm, I'm really for uh, leaders recognizing that they have a lot of different tools that they can use when they have meetings, be it standing meetings, sitting de- meetings, walking meetings, um, and even huddles. So huddles are this idea of a 10-minute meeting, maybe 15, but time-limited, very sharp, um, very tight, where it's a meeting designed to build alignment for that day. So it's akin to kind of American football, where there's a play called in this huddle. So there's a gathering of the team for 30 seconds to kind of all get on the same page, recognize potential challenges, um, and execute. And so this is a way that organizations can do that too, right? So you can start thinking of your having a daily huddle or an every other day huddle where a team quickly meets, addresses, the immediate issues gets on the same page. And then every week or every other week, then they have a more substantive meeting to discuss kind of bigger, more broader issues. And so it's a nice approach. It's a different type of a meeting cadence that can have some great results. Mm -hmm. So what kind of results have you seen from people using this? I mean, does it eliminate the need to have yet one more long weekly meeting? Oh, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, it's not so... It's not meeting time in and of itself that is upsetting for people. What's upsetting for people is non-productive time. So people don't just rail against having another meeting for an hour. What they're railing against is having another wasted meeting of an hour. So if you can prove your meetings to be highly effective, dynamic, engaging, inclusive experiences, then people don't really see them as meetings, per se. They think see them as essential activities to get work done. All right, so can you give me an example of a team that you've seen who does this, just to make it a little more tangible? You know, what was the focus of the huddle meeting? How regularly did they meet? And kind of how what were people saying about this afterwards? Sure. So um, I know an organization that their sales team had huddles, um, every other day. And it was a great way for that team to kind of take a look at what are the kind of main customer kind of the customers to focus on, what are some potential customer issues that they need to be aware of, what might be some supplier or production issues that everyone needs to know about, what are some quick specials or sales, what have you. And people can kind of go around and share, you know, kind of like their goal for the day. Um, Then people can identify the fact, oh, gosh, look, we interact on this or intersect, so let's go offline and talk. So that would be an application where a sales team used this as a great way to truly act like a team (laughs) and not just a set of individuals. I love that, act like a team. Actually, we are here to support each other, exchange information, and do all the right things. I think this idea of huddle meetings makes a ton of sense. And let me tell you how I'm seeing it so you can react to this one. Is that as a leader, 
I gather people around either every day or every other day. Again, it might not be every day where it's the quick hit piece of information that I heard yesterday in some other meeting that I was in that you all need to know about before I forget it for our next Tuesday meeting. Or, you know, somebody's got an issue who can help me with this, or there's a resource allocation problem we need to know about, or there's a firestorm somebody needs to be involved in and fixing. And that that doesn't drag on until Tuesday next week and then become a line item on the agenda. And so the first half of the meeting is, you know, da, 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 what happened? That the meeting, that the big meeting actually becomes a substantive working thing. We get to cover off these little bits of thing. And it's way more efficient, I think, face-to-face than it is or vocally than it is on email. So you agree with my analysis or did I get it wrong? No, I think that's fine. I think that's fine. And I like it. Um, I think it could totally work well. And, you know, what you should do is every once in a while you should evaluate how it's going. Um, have the team evaluate the huddles based on what's going well, not so well, and what can we do differently, and gather some quick feedback, and then make some changes, and keep doing them, but now you're going to do them better. Um, so anything that happens all the time should be evaluated in some way. Um, and the best leaders are willing to be nimble, you know, collect that feedback, and constantly learn, reflect, grow, change, and make better. Great. It's fabulous. Now, you mentioned standing meetings. You said sitting meetings, standing meetings, walking meetings, huddle meetings, all sorts of varieties. To be more intentional, again, about that one. Is there an advantage to doing a standing meeting versus a sitting meeting? I know a number of executives who've taken the chairs out of their office just to get people standing and making sure they're a little sharper. Is that mythology or is there some truth to it? Um. Sure. I mean, I, depending on, um, kind of on the group, um, and the purposes of the meeting, um, I think standing meetings could be great. Uh, the research in standing meetings shows that they basically produce same quality outcomes as sitting meetings, but in nearly half as much time. Um, so that's a very positive outcome. You know, I, I don't think that standing meetings should be done all the time, but I think it should be done some of the time. I just very much like the idea of meeting leaders mixing things up. There are, uh, you know, over 100 million meetings a day across the globe. So with over 100 million meetings a day and they're all being done the same way, that's pretty monotonous and boring. So the leaders who just kind of mix it up, try new things to build energy, um, different patterns, you know, they're going to benefit from it. So standing meetings could be done for all the meeting or even just part of the meeting. Um, it's just another choice that can be considered when someone is being intentional. Right. right. I love that. A hundred million meetings a day across the globe. Oh, my goodness. That's an incredible number. A hundred million meetings a day. Okay, and I want to repeat something you said, too, just to make sure everybody heard it really clearly, that standing meetings, the research says that they produce the same quality as sitting meetings, but in half the time. And obviously, if every meeting is standing, that's going to get boring and not so productive. So the whole secret is mixing it up, having some variety, as you've rightly said. Half the time. Boy, is that incredible. Is that incredible. Okay, let's talk about, I want to talk a little bit about the design for the meeting. Um, 
Is there kind of an ideal way to design a meeting or are there multiple ways? And, you know, kind of give me some examples. How, how do I go about thinking about this flow of the meeting as you described? So there's, I mean, there's definitely not one uh, way and there are definitely multiple ways, uh, lots of different ways of going about it. Um, so, you know, would you like to spend more time talking about maybe something in particular, be it meeting size or? Um, yeah. Or, yeah, let's okay. start there. Or, let's talk with meeting size and then we'll come back to some, some intentionalities here. So, yeah, is there a optimal meeting size? So there's not an optimal meeting size, but we know that the more attendees, um, the more challenges. Um, bigger meetings tend to be um, more ineffective. Um, something called social loafing occurs, which is the idea that um, in the presence of, presence of a large number of other people, we tend to decrease our efforts. So we want to make sure that our meetings are as lean as possible. And this is actually more tricky than we think, because one of the things that we know is that while people complain about meetings, they're also really concerned if they're not invited to a meeting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we have to kind of think who are the core people that have to be there, then who are the people who, yeah, you don't, they're not absolutely necessary to be there. Um, And for those individuals, instead of inviting them, talk to them beforehand. Say to them, hey, we're having this meeting. I don't really think that it's all that necessary for you to be there, but here are the topics. If you have any input on any of these, email me. I'm going to send you the meeting minutes right after the meeting. And if at any point down the road you wanted to attend um, future meetings, you're more than welcome. Um, if you tell people those three things, then they'll typically have no problem saying, you know what, I'm good. You guys have a meeting without me. Thank you so much for keeping me in the loop. And off you go. So there's just we can be active in kind of how we manage meeting size through invites, but we can also even be active with managing meeting size depending on how we structure the meeting. So, for example, we could create the agenda such that um, the first half is relevant to a larger group of people, and then the next set of agenda items is actually relevant to only a smaller set of them. So we excuse others. We say, thank you, you're, you're good. Now I'm just going to meet with these other people to cover the other agenda items. So we can be very purposeful in how we, how we design it to help manage meeting size. Great. So social loafing, this notion that when we get a large number, larger number of people in the room, people tend to socially loaf, which means they become more passive. Tell me a little bit more. You know, give a bit better definition of that one. Tell me how it works, please. Well, social loafing is a phenomenon that has been found through... I think hundreds of studies Um, and it goes back all to this classic research where, you know, let's say you are having people, um, let's say play, you know, do tug of war and you tell someone, I want you to pull on this rope as hard as you can. And then machinery can identify how much, how many pounds or pressure you were able to uh, exert. And what they find is that you, as you add people to the rope, people, each individual actually starts to decrease their amount of total force. And we've observed this not only for tug of war, but even in yelling, where you tell people, I want you to yell the loudest you possibly can, but then you start adding people to the equation and then people actually don't give it their all. And this also takes place in group interactions. As the meeting size gets larger, we just tend to start to deferring more to others, um, allowing other people to kind of 
do the heavy lifting and the pulling. Uh, so kind of the, the sum of the parts doesn't equal what we would be doing as individuals. Okay. And is there a break point at which we are more likely to tip into social loafing? Like if I have 10 people in the room, am I not going to get social loafing? But if I get up to 15, I am. Is there a break point or does it not work that way? Um, it just keeps building. Um, yeah. So um, basically, as you move beyond, you know, you start getting beyond eight people, um, it just starts building. So the more and more you have, there's just a greater um, percentage, a greater ratio of social loafing. So it's just a, you know, great little function um, size loafing um, increases. Okay. Wow, that would encourage you to start keeping the meetings down in size. And plus, you can get through, you can hear from everybody with eight people, 20 people in the room. That's hard to hear from many people at all. Yeah. Okay, so the social loafing phenomenon, if I get too many people in the room, then people are going to start putting less effort in. They're going to do more deferring and becoming more passive. All right. And then you've said that, you know, sort of the antidote to that is one to talk to people and to make sure that people know what the topics are, that they can weigh in in advance, that they'll get a copy of the meeting minutes and that at some future point they could come if they wanted to or and or making sure your first half of the meeting can be the larger group and the second half of the meeting is a smaller group. Okay, so we're going to take a break in a minute. But before we do, I just have to ask Stephen, meeting minutes, how important are they? And is there a way to do these that makes them really effective? So, um, definitely um, minutes can matter. Uh, oh, that's kind of a fun, minutes can matter. Yeah. But, um, you know, it depends on kind of the nature of the meeting. Um, and what kind of accountabilities does the, the meeting agenda require? So I don't think that every meeting has to have minutes associated with it, but I do think that there are a number of times where it is helpful. Um, at the very least, it's helpful just to record what were the decisions that were made and who are the directly responsible individuals. So that information is exceptionally important. Uh, that information, you know, getting that distributed right away makes tons of sense. But whether you need every single utterance recorded, um, you know, that's going to yeah. depend. Um, I could certainly think of sometimes that's relevant, um, but not necessarily all the time. But whatever you can do to promote accountability and whatever you can do to promote that what was discussed actually happens, um, that's okay. what you want as a meeting leader and minutes can help. Okay. All right. I love that one. So I like this notion of just recording what the decisions are and who's accountable. Because even if that's all I have and I didn't attend the meeting, I at least know who to talk to. I know who I need to influence. And we know who to follow up with and say, did you do it or you didn't do it? Okay, we're going to take a pause at this point. My guest today is Stephen Rogelberg. And as you've heard, Stephen spent more than 20 years researching what makes for great meetings. His newest book, The Surprising Science of Meetings, How You Can Lead Your Team to Peak Performance, is getting rave reviews all over everywhere and on as everybody's best um, summer reading list, as you can well imagine, because we all could do a better job with meetings. I think the key theme for me, Stephen, out of this part of the show is just this notion of being an intentional steward of other people's times, exactly the way you would be an intentional steward of a customer's time. It's no different, 
but it's then using all the tools that I have to make for the most effective meeting structure. So when we come back, I want to talk about that lovely thing called virtual meetings and get some advice on how to do those more effective. We'll be right back. business community's first choice in internet talk radio voice america business network if you want more information on the articles books coaching and seminars we offer go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com you're sure to find some helpful links videos and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization leadership forum inc helping organizations get it and keep it This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take Voice America on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back. With me today is Stephen Rogelberg. The book we're talking about is The Surprising Science of Meetings, How You Can Lead Your Team to Peak Performance. And we've had all sorts of tidbits in thus far about what makes for a more effective meeting. If you just pick up three or four of those, you're going to have a much more productive meeting. I should tell you also that the book is chock full of tools to use, evaluations to use, way to assess the effectiveness of meeting on every single one of the topics that we've been talking about. And if you visit Stephen's website, stephenrogelberg.com, you can see even more of the work behind that one. All right. So Stephen, I want to talk about remote meetings because I was with a group this week and I think 90% of their meetings, even with customers, are remote. It's rare that they're face-to-face. So this seems to be, but everybody is asking about it. And typically, we've got one or two people on the phone or on a WebEx and a bunch of other people in the room. So what's your best advice about how we do these kind of meetings in a more effective manner? Great question. And the remote meetings are tricky. They're definitely tricky. And um, interestingly, if you ask people what are the most dysfunctional meeting types, they're going to say the remote meeting. And if you ask people what meeting type do you most prefer, they're going to say the remote meeting. Why do you think (laughs) that is? Um, I don't have travel time. (laughs) Well, that's actually a good guess. But the the reason is that people often prefer remote meetings 
so that they can multitask. Um, So they can basically be doing other work, um, which clearly is not helpful. Um, So remote meetings bring with it a whole host of problems. Um, All the problems I mentioned earlier tend to be inflated because there's this lack of visual cues. So people kind of just blend off into the background um, so they and they start doing other things. So definitely remote meetings require excellent meeting leadership skills and even a few add-ons. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So we've got all the things that we've talked about, the intentionality, the starting with a really positive mood as a host, welcoming people in, being very thoughtful about the agenda and the questions, um, using different types and different styles just to get some variety. But what does that? What else do we add to that set uh, for a remote meeting that's going to make it more effective? Good. So with remote meetings, first of all, um, we want to really require everyone to be on there five minutes early so all the tech issues can be dealt with before the start of the meeting. We want the meeting leader to embrace their role um, also as an air traffic controller that they need to be calling people out by name, um, asking, hey, you know, Gordon, I haven't heard from you. Uh, Sasha, you know, give me your thoughts on this. Um, Sandy, do you agree with this? So they're constantly using names to make sure that people don't kind of fall off um, into the background. Um, Also, these meetings are best when they are done with video so that there's, again, these visual cues. Um, At the same time, I think we want to make these things shorter I think we also want to make sure that we leverage some pre-meeting time to gather input. So, for example, uh, let's say that we're going to have a discussion. Um, we want to generate ideas about uh, something. Well, we can actually do that just by doing a quick survey beforehand where people kind of contribute their thoughts. And then at the meeting itself, you know, maybe there's a discussion of those ideas that emerged pre-meeting that maybe received the most support or came up the most. So basically, we start thinking carefully about kind of pre-meeting time and post-meeting time um, so that we can shrink remote meeting time and just make it more pointed and powerful. Okay. So that is, again, being very intentional about the things that we all need to weigh in on and be present for and truly discuss Versus I think a lot, of, a lot of meetings slide into information, dissemination, telling, and not discussion orientation. Right, so, right. So you, you, know, the, you mentioned, go ahead. No, I was going to say that, you know, these, that when you're leading a remote meeting, you just have to come to peace with the fact that um, you have to actively facilitate. Uh, that you are on top of who's talking, who's not talking. You might even be keeping a list of who's talking and who's not talking. You know, basically, you're thinking less about your personal contributions and more about the collective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is, you're right, though. It is hard to be the leader and to put in your own input and to facilitate it at the same time. So do you recommend that we routinely have facilitators in meetings, or is that something that should be rotated, or is it really the leader's job? So it's a great question, and um, the leader can definitely do it, but the leader can have that role um, rotate, and they can have someone else do it. Those are choices at hand. Um, So depending on what the topic is, you know, that's the leader needs to kind of reflect on it. But 
what I love about your question, and I think the real key takeaway for your audience is that someone's got to facilitate. Someone's <laughs> got to make sure that these dynamics that are so hard to achieve, um, these positive dynamics are so hard to achieve in virtual meetings, someone's got to help make it happen. Yeah. Okay, so I get that I need to be tracking as the leader of these meetings who's spoken a tiny bit about what they've said so I know who to call on that I haven't heard from and make sure I get the quieter voices or the non-outspoken cultures to kind of weigh in, give everybody a moment in time. Um, I need to be managing the time here. I need to be managing the energy level. And we need to be doing using more pre-meeting time to gather input and ideas and thoughts and then using the meeting time in a very targeted way. Okay? Now, talk to me for a minute about what we do post-meeting time. Is there are specific things that we should be using there? Yeah, so it's another opportunity to, um, you know, have people vote on certain options, right? So often these remote meetings, it's hard to really know whether you have consensus or not. So post-meeting, we can say, okay, here are the ideas that were generated. Now let's vote on it um, and at least see what emerges. Uh, You can even, there's apps that allow people to vote and even comment anonymously on various topics. Um, Mm -hmm. You could have, you know, kind of a running dialogue via Google Docs. So basically, the, the meeting itself become, kind of serves one purpose, but then you're using some of these more asynchronous tools to really make sure that people's voices are being heard, um, that consensus is being examined, and you really have a better sense of where folks are. Okay. All right. Asynchronous tools. I haven't heard that word used in a long time, but it's a very effective word on all of these. Now, let's talk about another problem. I get seven people in a room who all are in the same city and all know each other incredibly well. And I have one person on the phone who's usually in a very different time zone and often a very different culture. So it's frequently late for that person on the phone or not in a prime optimal time. And the tendency is for everybody in the room to dominate the discussion and the person on the phone, by the way, to really multitask. So, A, we would stop the multitasking, but what else can we do to make that one lonely person feel like they're really a part of this basically face-to-face meeting? Well, there's a couple paths. Um, So, some organizations actually, um, to equalize the experience, have everyone attend remote. So, even though there are a number of people in present, they still say, hey, you know what, everyone's going to do it, so everyone's on equal footing. So, that's a potential option to take. Another option is, um, you know, if someone's on remote, you definitely have them on video. Um, You definitely position the screen in a place where everyone can see it. That leader does a really good job kind of calling out to that person and then actively engaging them at multiple points in the meeting. And you make sure that there's a good camera in the conference room so that when people who are present also speak, that remote individual knows exactly who it is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah, that's hard to do, too. I absolutely agree. And some companies are doing a good job of this technology, and some companies are not doing a good job of this technology. Um, I have one client, for example, when they, in their last building, every phone, every single phone in the building is a video phone. So you don't have the option to turn the camera off. 
Yep. She makes yep. an uh, interesting thing. Okay. I agree. Yeah, I know. I know companies that are doing that too, and I think it sends a strong message. Um, you know, of if you're going to have an engagement with another person, that you need to be fully present. Yeah. Yeah. Now we're back to stopping a lot of the multitasking. You cannot read your email and actually really attend in spite of the fact that you think you can do it. Okay, that's another topic for another day. Um, any other advice on remote meetings that we haven't covered? Um, no, I think, we did, okay. I think we did well. Okay. All right. I want to talk about interruptions then because one of the other problems particularly, and this is a problem with remote Uh, meetings as well, especially when I'm on the phone and everybody else is in the room, I can't interrupt. And then I hear this constantly between the U.S. and various other countries in the world where how do you deal with interruptions? You know, if you don't interrupt in some cultures, you're never going to get a word in. And in others, they're less kind about the interruptions. What's your advice about how to deal with interruptions in meetings? Well, in the remote setting, this is it actually can be handled so there's a couple things. So in a remote setting, often this is how I use the chat function. So I tell mm-hmm. people that if they want to speak, let me know on the chat function. And then as a meeting leader, um, I could chime right into it and help you know, make sure that person's voice um, gets staged. Um, the other thing is just try to establish some informal or formal ground rules at the beginning. Right, where you could say, you know what, I want, there's a lot of folks here. They all want to get their voices heard. So you know, basically, we're going to keep contributions to no more than 30 seconds. And that's just a process. It's not personal, but it's just a way to make sure that we get good flow and everyone gets the opportunity to speak. Um, I've seen other um, organizations that, you know, basically kind of um, related to that last piece of advice that they assign someone that role that, you know, they hold up a card when someone's time is running out. Again, it's not personal. It's just the, there's a rule that was adopted. So I think that those are some ways um, to try to kind of address interruptions, but in a non-personal way. Right, right, right. Um, some people would argue that interruptions are a good thing. Is, is it? Is there any evidence that interruptions are a problem or not a problem? Um, so do you mean, when you say interruptions, are you talking about like another individual interrupting yeah. someone when they're speaking? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Jumping in when I they're speaking. What's that? Yes. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Um, you know, I don't think it's a good thing or a bad thing. It just has the potential to be a disrespectful thing. And, um, you know, depending on that individual who does the interruptions history, I think it will be experienced in different ways. Uh, so if it's someone who tends not to interrupt, then it's just seen as passion. If it's someone who's always interrupt, interrupting, then it's just seen as someone trying to dominate and be disrespectful. So I think this is where history uh, plays in, in in terms of how it's going to be experienced. Right. And history of the person who's interrupting as well as history of the person who's being interrupted, because we certainly hear a lot of gender and minority issues surface on this one, where people feel singled out that they're always interrupted. Don't know if that is true or not, but that's certainly the feeling. 
Okay, Stephen, one of the things that I find fascinating in the book is that you have actually solicited from various uh, clients over the years or people who've attended your courses for some of the best ideas of things that they have done to improve the effectiveness and the fun of the meetings. And I'm just curious about some of the best pieces of advice or best pieces of feedback you've gotten in those um, responses back. So what, what we know is that um, the collective mood matters, that um, when people are generally in a good mood, um, they are more creative, um, and they're also more cognitively flexible, which basically means they're just more open-minded and not so stubborn. So positive mood in a meeting is really a good thing. It, it leads to you know, some really meaningful outcomes. And interestingly, one of the best predictors of kind of the group mood is actually the leader's mood. Um, so how that leader himself or herself enters the room is going to be very predictive. So if that leader comes in, comes in a bad mood, that's going to actually, uh, or a good mood, that's going to make it much more likely that the entire meeting will be in a good mood. So um, that's really important for that leader to, to recognize that. And it goes back to some of those host behaviors that we talked in the first part of the interview. Um, and then there's other ways of trying to help people kind of be in a good mind state. Um, so for example, one of the most surefire techniques is to have snacks. Um, yeah. now I don't think you should have snacks all the time, but snacks do tend to make people kind of happy. Um, and it's not the snacks in and of themselves, but it's the fact that you took a moment to show caring. Um, some meeting leaders, you know, will throw some, you know, kind of, um, gadgets and toys on the table, you know, that people seem to kind of like to play with, um, and there was a study that was recently released that showed that those types of toys actually kind of helped create a more creative climate. Um, okay. So I think there's a, a variety of ways to the leader's actions, to their own moods, through having kind of a positive environment um, that can kind of build this, um, you know, more positive, engaging experience. Okay. That sounds pretty important, that the mood of the leader, my mood walking in the room, and everybody's trying to read it because everybody's looking at every clue possible to see what the leader's mood is, that if I, as a leader, enter in a positive mood, I'm much more likely to have the group be in a positive mood. And a positive mood means we have greater flexibility, which means less stubbornness and more creativity among a handful of a host of things that that does. I love that. What a great piece of advice. All right, so what other feedback have you heard? Um, hmm, well, give me, give me a little bit more prompt. What, what would you like to focus on? You have so many in the, in the examples in the book. It's really hard to pick out one in particular. Um, anything that helped, you know, um, how about evaluations, about evaluating the effectiveness in meeting? Any Good. advice there? Good. That's excellent. Um, so, you know, meetings um, are shared experiences. And one of the things that we've learned in our research is that one individual um, tends to leave meetings thinking that they were particularly good experiences. Do you want to guess who that person who tends to be the most positive is? The leader. Yes. So the meeting leader has this um, kind of this 
uh, more rosy perception. And when we think about all the grousing and frustrations with meetings, we know there's some type of misalignment. Um, so this suggests that meeting leaders have a blind spot of sorts, right? That they mm-hmm. tend to have kind of this inflated perception. So therefore, because um, of this blind spot, because it's a shared experience, um, you know, what meeting leaders need to do is periodically collect some feedback. They just can't assume that the meeting is working well. They just can't assume that they are excellent leaders of the meeting. And they can do something very simple. Um, it doesn't have to be anything big. It could just be a three-question survey that they send out, um, you know, what's going well, what's going not so well, what are some ideas for improvement. That's it. Okay. Then gather That's information. It. Look for some feedback and some themes. Learn from it, and then share it with your team and make some positive changes. What's amazing okay. about this very simple technique is not only are you making your meetings better, but you're also contributing to a bigger positive culture, a culture yeah. of learning, of experimentation, of reflection, and growth. <laughs> Win-win all the way around. All right, Stephen, yes. so much in this one. What is strikes me about this in particular is that every one of these are eminently applicable immediately. They don't take an enormous amount of time. It's just a matter of getting five of these and doing something about it. Yes, exactly. I mean, that's one of the things, you know, when I think about the book and, you know, and the book came out January 2nd, I think January 3rd, Washington Post, named, you know, the number one leadership book. And, and it was really exciting for me. Um, because as you noted at the beginning, I've been doing research on this for 20 years. And to me, it suggests that the book is resonating with folks because it's based in science and it looks and feels different than other meeting books. Namely, it doesn't prescribe some magic formula. It doesn't say do A, then B, then C, then D, because that's not true. What it says is that there's a variety of different things leaders can do. You have choices. And what we wanted you to do is just pick the right choices for you and for your culture and for your people. But just that very act of being intentional and making choices is going to lead to some positive outcomes. And so I think the message from the book is just really energizing. And it's not hard to try new things. It's not hard to try to dial back how much time you're meeting, right? That's easy, right? You can just give it a go. It's not hard to do a quick survey and see how things are going. So there's just a lot of things that someone can do that are easy and have a big positive impact. And the beauty of it is, is it results in more time. And if you ask yeah, people yeah. what they want more of, it's time. And it's you're time. The, All right. than the person that gives people back time. Fabulous, Stephen. We are out, and we are out of time. My guest today, Stephen Rogelberg. You visit his website, stephenrogelberg.com, and the book is called The Surprising Science of Meetings. Stephen, intentionality with people's time, a steward of the time, is the watchword for me at the end of this one. Thank you very much. And to join us You're next very week for. Pleasure. <laughs> likewise, join us next week for another episode in Getting Out of Your Comfort Zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.